Good morning from me. Uh, if you've not met me before, my name is Philip. I lead the church here. It's great to see you. If you are new, and it's great to see you. If you are not new, I hope you're having a great morning with us. Uh, I really enjoyed that time of worship. It's just brilliant to continue to grow in our encounters with God and to experience God in worship. is just kind of what we're made for, really, and it's wonderful to do that as a gathered church. We're in a series of talks called The Trial. This is week nine of 11 talks. Um, so you can pray for me because I can feel the, uh, the tank is getting a little bit uh, less full than it was in week one. Um, we've got three weeks to go looking through the, the book of Romans. And we've called it uh, the trial because in the book of Romans, Paul, who's the author, often he uses a very kind of legal lens or a legal framework, legal language to explain the different angles of the gospel. And uh, this week is a little bit different in that there's less legal framework, but certainly there's a new angle of the gospel that Paul's going to bring out in chapter 7 of Romans this morning. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans 7. Uh, verses 1 to 6. And whilst you're doing that, I'm sure you're all pretty good at multitasking, so whilst you're turning to, your, to the right passage in Romans, I want you to also think, have you ever been in a situation, round a table perhaps, with a very diverse group of people? Have you ever been in a situation with a very, very diverse, eclectic group of people? Maybe different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different worldviews particularly. I was reflecting on that this week and thinking of some of the times I've been in quite a variety of backgrounds where you sit around a table maybe at a wedding reception, that kind of thing, and you've got very different uh, worldviews, very different philosophies on life, very different educational backgrounds, perhaps cultural and ethnic uh, kind of lenses that shape people's views and so on. And I was trying to think, what are the things that we would, those people would be able to agree on? So very, very different people with very different worldviews and backgrounds and so on. What would they be able to agree on? And I guess, like, generally, most people would probably be able to agree that they all have a desire to be happy. There's probably an agreement in the room that everybody has a desire for the world to be a better place, a place for human flourishing and so on. But one of the things that I think even the most diverse, uh, eclectic bunch of people could agree on is that all human beings desire to be fruitful. All human beings desire to be fruitful. And by fruitful, I mean producing things of benefit, of significance, of lasting effect through your efforts and endeavors. I think most people, whatever their views about the world, would agree that deep inside, all of us want our efforts and our endeavors to be fruitful, to produce something of good, something of lasting significance and effect. And in our own lives, that might be as simple as the interests, our hobbies, the time, things that we give ourselves to. It might be our workplace, it might be our family, whatever it might be. We have a desire that what our efforts and endeavours go to should bear fruit, should have some lasting significance and effect. And the Bible isn't surprised that we have that desire in us as human beings, because it tells us that we do. At the very beginning of the Bible, the beginning of creation, you look at the story of uh, the beginning of creation and Adam and Eve and the beginning of humanity, right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, it says very simply that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then very quickly, in the next verse, God creates woman completely equal and different, and the two come together in one unity, and their kind of first activity, if you like, almost, maybe their second, I don't know, is to, is to and we're there, good, well done, you're awake, we're awake, good, 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 if all else fails, drop a dodgy gag in and it wakes the church up, this is good, maybe their second fruitful activity is to, is to cultivate and to steward and to get to work in the creation in front of them. Right at the beginning of humanity, before humanity has been distorted, 
before that, right, if you like, in the, the spiritual DNA of mankind, is a desire and an ability, God-given, to be fruitful, to cultivate, in literally, in their terms, to actually cultivate the land. But in that human d- d- DNA, right at the beginning, is a desire to be fruitful, to cultivate things for good. And I think I would take it a step further and say, actually, that desire to be fruitful... I would suggest this morning that is dependent upon a key factor, if not the key factor. And the key factor behind our ability to be fruitful is our relationships. It's our relationships. And again, look at that original prototype of humanity. And Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship. It's the one and only perfect marriage. They had it for a time. Their relationship with God was perfect. And as a result, they were so fruitful. What they gave their, their time to, they were so able to cultivate and to steward and to see, to see progress and change because of the perfection of their relationships. And I think we know that. I think we know that relationships are a key factor behind our ability to be fruitful. So in the workplace, it's pretty important, isn't it, to have healthy relationships with the boss or with colleagues or with employees, with clients doesn't mean you can't be fruitful without those things, but if you do have healthy relationships in those areas, it's surely going to help your fruitfulness in the workplace. When I was a, a teacher until a couple of years ago, and that, I think, struck me pretty early on, that I could have as much knowledge as I wanted. I could rule with the iron rod of discipline if I wished. But fundamentally, it was the relationship with the kids that was the key factor in my teaching being fruitful. It was the key factor in fruitfulness in that, in that world. And I think what you're going to see in this passage, in Romans 7, is Paul kind of arguing the same thing. He's making a similar point. He wants to argue that the gospel, which is the good news of all that Christ has accomplished, done, has caused a fundamental relationship change in order that we can be fruitful. That's what he's about to argue. There's been a fundamental relationship shift And that's happened in order for us to be fruitful. Let's see how he argues that. He uses a slightly curious metaphor, first of all, and then he kind of applies it. So let's see what he says in verse 1. Don't you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by her law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So Paul's not really making a point about marriage and divorce. He's using this as a metaphor to make his point, which he now makes. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Excuse me. So if you've been around the last couple of weeks or you've caught up on podcasts or you've been discussing and applying this in your midweek life groups, you'll know that over the last couple of weeks as we've been in chapter 6, Paul has told us a couple of things. He said that the gospel has won for us a new identity in chapter 6. Second part of chapter 6, he told us that it has won for us the freedom to choose a new and perfect master. 
And now he wants to tell us that it has won for us a new relationship, one that can mean that we can now do what we were created to do, to be truly and genuinely fruitful. That's what he's arguing. But I think if we unpack these six verses, you'll see that he's drawing out three possible relationships that we can give ourselves to in our desire to be fruitful. He's going to draw out three possible relationships that we can give ourselves to in our desire to be fruitful. The first one, bearing in mind that I think all of us want to be fruitful, the first kind of relationship that we can give ourselves to, or the first kind of methodology or philosophy to bear fruit, to be fruitful in efforts and our endeavors, is to say, my method is to follow my heart, is to follow my desires, what my heart wants, what my heart longs for, what I'm passionate about, what I feel. If I follow those things, that's going to cause and bear fruitfulness. And Steve Jobs, he of Apple fame, you may have seen the film already out about him of, of, in recent weeks. And he's a pretty fruitful man in many ways, pretty fruitful man. But, and he kind of, I think, personifies uh, this kind of worldview. He says this, don't be trapped by dogma. Don't let the noise of others' rules drown out your own inner voice. Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. That's a pretty commonly held worldview. You want to be fruitful? You want to leave a lasting legacy and significance? Follow what's in your heart. That's a pretty commonly held worldview. And it can lead to great fruitfulness. Like, if anybody, in some ways, bore great fruit at Steve Jobs, or extraordinary what he managed to achieve through Apple and the impact that it's had on all of our lives. And in some ways, I'd say you'd be hard pushed to find anybody more fruitful from him. And since he passed away, I've just been interested in reading a little bit about his life since he passed away earlier on. And I've just been fascinated to see uh, something of his like, creative genius, just amazing, where the way he was able to understand what human beings already what human beings wanted before they even knew they wanted it. And like, his determination to, to stick to the values and the creative vision that he had, his leadership was, I think, extraordinary in many ways. But also, if you know anything about Steve Jobs, you might also know that that creative leadership, dynamic genius, was mixed with a pretty destructive streak. And only, this, only last month, The Spectator was talking about him in similarly praiseworthy terms as I've been doing. But later in the article, The Spectator said, that, or they referred to Steve Jobs as neurotic, obsessive, driven, ruthless, and almost inhumanely or inhumanly oblivious to the needs of others. Because he was absolutely, let's be honest, he was gripped by this obsession to be successful. If you know anything about him, this obsession to prove other people wrong. This absolute obsession to be the best at what he did. And it kind of controlled him. I haven't seen the film yet, but I watched the, the trailer earlier on this week and I read some reviews, and the film tries to unpick some of the damaging effects that had whilst others of his, other parts of his creativity are flourishing and bearing great fruit. But that, that desire to be the best really did control him. And I think Paul understands this dynamic in the human heart pretty well. I think he understood it a couple of thousand years before we've been talking about it. Look at verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What does that mean? <laughs> it's quite dramatic language. Members and passions and deathly fruit and flesh and so on. What does it mean? Well, he's only really hinting at it here, but he is building on the idea that we looked at in chapter 6. 
Remember last week, we talked about the good desires that we have that can become over-desires. Things that we end up desiring too much. Things that we either have to have or have to keep hold of. And when that's the case, those things start to control us. They become, if you like, like spiritual masters. We have to have them, we have to keep them, and we're crushed if we can't or we don't. It might be career, might be productivity, might be family, might be physical attractiveness, might be comfort. Once those good things start to be things that we have to have or we cannot lose, they start to exert a degree of control over us. They start to become spiritual masters in some senses. And Paul is making a similar point here, and certainly he's building upon the point that he made in chapter 6. You see, sinful desires, sinful passions, are not just things that are blatantly sinful. Wanting to hurt somebody, wanting to steal, wanting to, to just pursue greed blatantly. They're also passions that become sinful. Good things that become over-desires or inordinate passions. What Paul has been saying through Romans, especially the last couple of chapters, is you will have a relationship. You will give yourself to something. And it will either be God or it will be something else. But you will give yourself. You won't be in neutral. You will give yourself into relationship with something. And whatever you give yourself to in relationship will have an inordinate effect on you. And we know that from our own human relationships. And so that is one means of achieving is to follow the passions, follow the heart, desire. And some people would, would continue to go for that. Others would say, okay, fine, it sounds a bit dangerous. I don't like the idea of just being led by my heart, by my passions. They could change, they could fluctuate. Others would say, well, I, I want to achieve fruitfulness still. I want to desire fruitfulness. So the means that I'm going to use, or the relationship number two that I'm going to give myself to, is to obeying the rules, sticking to the parameters, if you like, obeying the law, to use Paul's language. That's a different way of achieving fruitfulness. So I guess in the workplace, it would be the person that says, well, I know if I follow the regulations, if I stick to the policies, if I know the documentation, if I follow procedures, if I do the right thing, that I'll do well. That, that I will bear fruit through that mechanism. You can sometimes see it in marriage, perhaps. You can think, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good spouse because I'm home on time. I always do my jobs. The house is tidy, the finances are orderly, the kids are well behaved. And of course, let's, let's be honest, these things do help, they, they're good things, they do help fruitfulness, both in the workplace and in marriage. So going back to my teaching example of when I was in the, uh, a different kind of workplace, um, I had to follow the curriculum. <laughs> I was teaching history. I had to follow the curriculum and stick to that. I couldn't just think, well, I quite fancy teaching about the Egyptians, so I'll do that instead. That wouldn't have led to fruitfulness. Very reluctantly, I had to stick to the health and safety policy because you're supposed to, and you have to, and apparently you need to. I had to stick to the report writing policy. All of those things were important if I wanted to bear fruit. And when I become a husband next year, I know that if I'm chaotic with my timings and my finances and my tidiness, unlikely to lead to a fruitful marriage. So those things are important, but surely it's not enough, is it, to just follow the rules? to just, if you like, submit to the law. And with my teaching example again, like, hear me, I, I made loads of mistakes, and I'm sure there are some kids that were very glad to see the back of me. But I, I do think that I was pretty fruitful on the whole, and it wasn't because I knew the most information. In fact, I was the least knowledgeable in our department. 
But it was, I think, because I had good relationships with colleagues and with staff, and particularly with pupils. That was the key factor that allowed me to be really fruitful, well over and above my obedience to policies or my understanding of knowledge. It's one of the things I probably miss most, if I'm honest, is about teaching, is that dynamic, that relationship that you build up with different kids. And the, th- and the ones that change and fluctuate and come round full circle, all that kind of stuff, I really miss. That was the best part, was building some degree of relationship, rapport, with those that you were hoping to bear fruit with. Because that's how we're made, remember? That's how God made us right at the beginning, with a desire to bear fruit through relationships. And Paul's point, back into the passage, if you like, to these Christians in Rome, is he's warning them, really warning them strongly, about living under law about submitting yourself to a relationship with law, with rules and regulations. He really wants to warn them about that. So he's writing, isn't he? First century, Roman church, new Christians, most of them would have been Jews. And so the, the law, very literally for them, means the Mosaic law, because they were, they were Jews. That's the law that God gave to Moses hundreds of years before for the Jews to live by. As we said last week, the Mosaic law, God's law, was perfect. It was designed to point the human heart towards the perfection of God's heart. That's what it was for. But it strikes me that through the Old Testament, what you see is the Jewish people losing track of their primary calling, which is to connect with God himself, to be in relationship with him, and the relationship becomes less about them and God and more about them and the law. That becomes what they give themselves to primarily. And Paul is urgently warning them and us against living with that. Now, of course, we need to do a little bit of work here, don't we? Because we have never lived under the Mosaic. We've never been brought up to obey only the Ten Commandments and all the Jewish customs that came with them. So what often commentators and and theologians will do is they'll say, the Mosaic law, you can also call it the moral law. So C.S. Lewis is really helpful here. And he says, actually, the Mosaic law, really, you can trace it You can trace the similarities across all kinds of civilizations and ages and religions and cultures when you call it the moral law. The moral law is what human beings have been establishing for ages, a law of moral code. And the moral law is what we do when we take it and we apply it through our efforts and endeavors to our own weaknesses. That's what the moral law effectively is, a code, uh, a moral law that we take and we apply it to ourselves, and in turn, we apply ourselves to it. And so broadly speaking, Paul is warning us against living under the moral law in and of itself. And he's really warning us. Look at the language he uses. He says, you live in relationship with the moral law, verse 5, and it bears the fruit of death. (laughs) He puts it a different way in verse 6. He says it's like being a captive if you want to live like that. He knows that you can never fulfill it. If you give yourself wholly just to law-keeping, he knows you can never, ever fully match up. And if anybody tried, it was him. Literally, under the Mosaic law, every possible Jewish custom that had been built around the Mosaic law, he prided himself, before he was a Christian, on living to it almost perfectly. Especially all the external things, he could do it brilliantly. And in chapter 7, he goes on to talk about that. And he recalls, he reminds himself of how he was doing so well, obeying all the different Ten Commandments. No theft, uh, no murder, no adultery. And then he realizes, what's the last commandment? Do not covet. So do not let your heart want to desire what other people have. Don't let your heart cultivate as kind of a, a spirit of, of jealousy and envy about other people's blessings and possessions. And he realizes, I still couldn't do it. 
I was doing so well, keeping all the command. Got to the last one. I looked at my heart and I thought, of course. Of course there's coveting there. Of course I, I feel that sense of envy when somebody else gets blessed. Paul knows what it is to try and live up to the law and to realize it's impossible. And the trouble is with living under law, if you like, living under rules and regulations, is that when we're doing pretty well at it, let's say in the workplace or in the marriage, when we're doing pretty well at it, actually, if we're honest, we feel pride. Why? Because we're doing well by our own efforts. And we also feel frustration with those that aren't doing so well. Because we think we should try harder, because I am. And then... To make it worse, when we inevitably, like Paul, can't match up to perfection, because none of us gets even close, we feel guilt or despair. And that's why Paul is saying it's like a spiritual death. It's deathly to live under law. In fact, he uses this marriage uh, metaphor to really hammer his point home. He says it's, bit, it's like being married to a spouse to whom you're never good enough. Spiritual death, he says, you can't, you, can't, you can't get out. You're stuck living, married to a spouse to whom you're never good enough. Paul says, you want to live like that? It's, it's deathly. So what Paul is saying so far is every human being, of course, wants to bear fruit, be fruitful. God made you like that. But if you try and achieve that through either being, if you like, married to just your desires, your passions, what your heart wants or you try and achieve it by being married to obedience, to rule-keeping, if those are the two relationships that you give yourself to in order to achieve fruitfulness, he says, it's like a spiritual death. It's just deathly. But <laughs> the good news of the gospel, and it is good news, and I'm trying to deliberately bring us to a sense of, because <laughs> what Paul does, he wants to bring you to a, so that you see what he's trying to say now. He says, there's a third relationship that's possible. He says, for the Christian, you've had a relationship change. Your status, if you like, has changed so that you can be fruitful. That's what he wants to argue now. He's saying you've been released as a Christian. The angle this morning is, the part of the gospel angle is you've been released to a new relationship with Christ so that you can be fruitful, just like you always desired. That's what he wants to say. Now, as I mentioned, he uses a rather weird metaphor. I was quite comforted to see a few of the commentators saying, it's just a bit clunky. It's just a, it doesn't, almost doesn't quite work. And you're allowed to say that. It's still inspired by Scripture. And we're going to make sure it does help us. But it's a funny kind of metaphor that he uses. And what he basically says is, you've got this woman, and she's married. And of course, especially in those times, because marriage is like a legally binding thing, she can't just go off and, and marry somebody else because she's already in a marriage. That would be adultery. And he says the only thing that can break that legal transaction of marriage is a death. The husband has to die. And if he does, he says, then the legal transaction of marriage is ended. The thing that breaks the marriage is a death, is what Paul says. And then, in verse 4, he applies this metaphor by saying, and you also have died to the law so that you can belong to another. And that's part of what being a Christian is. Before being a Christian, or sorry, when you become a Christian, we cease being married to the law, is the phrase that Paul is using. And Paul says only a death can end a marriage like that. And more so, he says, 
and there has been a death. Yours. So what does that mean? What does it mean to die to the law, especially for those of us that have never been Jewish? So we have, I think, hopefully been building upon this concept in the last couple of weeks. So the gospel is not just the good news that Jesus died for us on our behalf, taking our punishment for our, if you like, law-breaking. We said it's also, and we'll see this this afternoon, particularly wonderfully in baptism, it's also the good news that our faith in his death and resurrection means that we are fully identified with him. Do we see that? It's not just that he is doing something on our behalf. Through faith, we get joined into him, identified with him. And so his death, uh, burial, and resurrection is ours through faith. We die with him, are buried with him, and are raised to newness of life as we were encountering in worship with him. And so that's why we're able to move, we said last week, from giving ourselves to our sinful desires whether they're just blatantly sinful, whether they're good things that become inordinate desires, we can, we can be released from that to serving a new master, a perfect master. But look at this week. Paul is using the same terminology about dying to sin as he is about this thing of the law. He says you've died to both things. Now we kind of get that with sin, don't we? We think, of course, I, I want that stuff that's been in me, that was in me. I, I want that just to die with Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Buried in the tomb, to be left behind. I'm no longer mastered by sin. I'm free with a new identity. We get that. But we don't quite get that the law or our marriage to the law. Also, Paul used the same language, died with Christ, and our faith in that act identifies us with that. But it's really important this morning that we do get that, because Paul thinks it's a big deal. It's a really big deal, he says, so that we could belong to another. That's the point of dying to marriage with the law, is that we can belong to another. So he says, rather than effectively being in relationship with law-keeping, or indeed with lawlessness, just following our heart's desires, we're now in relationship with Christ. It's as though we're married to him, which I've always found a really difficult concept. Maybe, as, particularly as a guy, I don't know. Maybe it's for all of us. But it's the spousal love, the, the strongest human love, I guess, along with parenting that there is. That's the relationship we've now been brought into, spousal love with Christ. At least that phrase has helped me this week. And why has all of this happened? Look at verse 4. Why has this death happened, this resurrection happened, this new, if you like, marriage happened? Verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In order that we may bear fruit to God. Paul's saying, the whole point of this gospel angle this morning, he said 2,000 years ago, the whole point of it was that you could be brought into a new relationship so that you could be fruitful. So that you could be fruitful for God. So how does this happen? How does it happen? How can you, how can we be fruitful for God? Not, verse 6, in the old way of the written code. We don't go back to just rule keeping. It happens in the new way of the Spirit. In relationship with Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, to bear fruit for Jesus. So when was the last time you thought about the gospel as being all about bringing you to a space where you could be utterly fruitful for God. You see why there's all these different angles of the gospel we've been looking at each week. Wonderful that it clears our debt of guilt and shame. 
Wonderful that it, as, as Paul was bringing and interpreting, wonderful that it then brings all this perfection and credit and righteousness. Wonderful that it gives us a brand new identity. Wonderful that it gives us a hope for eternity that all things will be dealt with. And wonderful that the very thing that humans were built with originally to want to be fruitful is achieved and accomplished. The gospel angle this morning is that God has rescued you and saved you and died on your behalf so that you can be fruitful. So I want to bring that to a close really by beginning to apply that to our own lives like today and tomorrow. Here's my question. It sounds a bit religious. Where is your Garden of Eden? Where is your Eden? By that I mean humanity, that, that original template, Adam and Eve, they were in the Garden of Eden and the first thing God did was say, bear fruit in every sense. Where is your Garden of Eden? Where's the place, the sphere of influence, the, the friendship group? Where's that place that you want to see progress, change, advance, the place where you want to leave a significant, lasting legacy? What's your Eden? Because you're built for one. You're designed for one. And you were rescued and redeemed to be able to bear fruit in one. Where's your Eden this morning? Could be the team that you lead at work. Could be the team or group that you lead in church. Could be your marriage. Could be your parenting. Could be that, the mum that you see at the school gates each week. Could be the, the kind of project you're bubbling with. The idea of starting a, a new business, of leaving the, of leaving the, the being, in, being under somebody else's employment and starting something brand new. What is your Eden this week? I want you to hear this. God made you in order that you might be fruitful in that place. And he's gone to such enormous lengths, enormous lengths, the death of his own son and the resurrection of his own son so that you come into newness of life in order that you may be fruitful for God's. I want us to begin to, to celebrate that this morning, to begin to apply it to our own uh, lives this week. There is an invitation in the gospel specifically to go and be fruitful, to go and prosper. Now, I know we get nervous about that language because some of us have seen different types of churches where prosperity is kind of guaranteed. and we, The gospel's got other things to say about that as well. But let's not be embarrassed because Paul isn't embarrassed about the gospel being partly about us being brought into a new life where we get to go forth and however we're wired, the good things that God's put in us, the talents, the gifts, the personality, the opportunities, we get to go forth and be fruitful in those places and bring glory to God as we do so. Where's your Eden? Where's the place, the space for you where fruitfulness is available? It might look impossible, but how do we do it, Paul says? Under the written code? No. By the Spirit, empowered and equipped by the Spirit. That's the promise that it is to be a Christian. Release the fruitfulness and equipped to bear fruit by the very Spirit of God. Application this morning, where is your Eden? And be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. Because the message of the gospel is you have been freed to go and bear fruit by the very Spirit of God working in you. I just That always amazes me that God has deemed you and I as a fitting place for his very spirit to come and dwell because he's made us totally clean and because he's put all of his perfection in us in Christ. And as a result, we're like a temple. We're a fitting place in his eyes for his very spirit to dwell. You're walking around this week as a temple of God's spirit. 
so that you can bear fruit, so that you can see change, so that you can bring peace where there's conflict, so that you can bring breakthrough where things are stuck, so that you can just, with a, with a Holy Spirit-led phrase, you can just change the dynamic in a team meeting. With a Holy Spirit-led phrase, you can just change your child's understanding of what you're trying to do for them. So with a Holy Spirit-led act of sacrificial servant-heartedness, you can change the dynamic of your marriage and be fruitful. That's the invitation of the gospel. I wonder if uh, Robin and the, guy, and the girls could come and join me at the front. We're going to worship and respond. Um, we're going to share communion shortly. And each week, we're trying to celebrate communion and to do so celebrating the specific angle, if you like, of the gospel. And I want communion to be always a celebration, but particularly so this morning. That broken body and shed blood represents God's absolute determination and passion to release the Christian into fruitfulness. That's what it did. It releases the Christian into fruitfulness led by the Spirit of God. So if you're a Christian this morning, take communion, asking God, where is my Eden? And please bring me afresh the power of your spirit that I might bear fruit where you've called me to bear fruit. So we'll start singing. Jason will help us to respond later on. Like I'm telling you, I'll I'll be first in the queue for prayer. Not because of some kind of clever uh, manipulation game that I'm playing to get you to respond in prayer. I genuinely, I I, I don't want to go anywhere without being led by the spirit. I want the spirit of God to be leading me this week so I can bear fruit. I'm not embarrassed about that. I've got ambitions for the gospel, ambitions for King's Church, ambitions for each of you in all of your lives, including the, the mundane stuff of life. Righteous ambition. So come and get the Holy Spirit. Be filled afresh that you might go forth and bear fruits. Take communion if you're a Christian and ask God, fill me afresh with my Holy Spirit. I'm going to be first in the queue getting prayer because I'm not going anywhere every day until I know the Spirit of God in me because God went to such lengths to mean that I could have it. Make sense? Let's stand. If you don't mind, and we'll pray. And we'll start singing and celebrating. And communion is not formal here. It'll appear at various stages. If you're not a Christian, feel under no obligation to share communion. But I would like you to spend time just reflecting. Why are these people taking this meal? What does it mean? What have I heard? Use the time, please, to reflect. But take communion any time you wish. We've got at least 15 minutes to worship, to celebrate, to grab the person next to you and pray. We don't need to kind of immediately process in a religious way down to communion. You can do it as and when makes sense for you, your friend, your spouse, and celebrate this amazing truth that God went to such lengths to bring us into a brand new relationship, the only one that would ultimately fully fulfill us and we can trust in order that we might go forth in that relationship to bear great fruit. Amen.